And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So Father, I pray that as we talk about joy this morning, that you would take those sour parts of our faces and our hearts and turn them into joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you didn't say amen. We're going to get you there. So let's talk about joy. The, uh, our culture today, it's interesting, when you analyze culture and what's gone on in the last 100 years of the western part of the world, which would include Western Europe and us here in America, uh, we've ushered in a thing called modernity with with all of our modern advances. And when you look closely, the vast majority of them have been designed to make life more comfortable, more easy, to give us more joy. Something that our great-grandparents never thought, even envisioned would happen. They were like science fiction to them a hundred years ago, uh, have now been made. They've been brought into existence in our modern culture. And I'm going to submit to you today that they were designed to give us more joy. So, for instance, a hundred years ago, people were dying of everyday infections and illnesses that we knew nothing about. The average life expectancy in the year 1914 in America was 52 years for men and 56.8 years for women. But now, with such medical advances as MRIs, chemotherapy, radiation, organ transplants, antibiotics, antivirals, advanced surgical techniques, statins, and all kinds of pharmaceuticals, and even general nutritional advances, the life expectancy for the average person in the year 2014 is 80 years old for women and 76 years old for men which didn't go over too well in the last service because there were a lot of older people, but (laughs) 
for many of you, I'm looking around, that's got to be encouraging to you and to me today. Our modern world has been able to extend life more than we ever thought. It's been designed to give us more comfort and joy. And then think about so many other things in our modern world that have been designed to give us joy, like mass, air, sea, and auto travel. We can now get anywhere in the world in just a matter of hours. Or how about information technology? We have information at our fingertips. We can communicate with loved ones far away in a matter of seconds. Or how about time-saving devices that, again, our forefathers and mothers only dreamed about? Things like microwave ovens, lawnmowers, LED lights, space heaters, air conditioning, all designed to make life easier and more comfortable and more enjoyable. And I haven't even gotten to entertainment yet. I mean, a hundred years ago, you ever seen the show Little House on a Prairie? A hundred years ago, I, I mean, what they did for entertainment when the lights went down is they'd light a candle and they'd read a book. You and I today, when we want to entertain ourselves, we got hundreds of different channels on cable TV. We got Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV, HBO, Showtime, ESPN, and my favorite, the NFL Network, all designed to bring entertainment to our lives to give us joy. Here's the point. The entire 20th century and now into the 21st century was a grand experiment in using modern technology to make life more comfortable and to give us more joy. And the obvious question you and I should ask as thinking Christian people is, is this working? Has the grand experiment of America paid off? And to be fair, if we're being honest with ourselves this morning, I guess we would say that in one sense, life is obviously easier and more comfort-laden today and so that when you and I go on a nice vacation or look at our 401 account, 401k account or go out for a nice dinner or watch a great TV show or do whatever we do to relax, we admit that it brings some joy. I mean, we call it the good life for a reason. The fact that when we're experiencing the good life, let's, not be, let's just be honest about it, it does bring some joy, especially depending on how you might define joy. But in another sense, here's the sobering part, most studies show that we are actually less content and less satisfied as Americans with modern living, at least in light of what we originally thought all this would bring. So like a kid who couldn't wait to open up his Christmas gift on Christmas morning to discover a brand new video game and to plug that video game in and within three hours be bored with it, you and I have unwrapped all the gifts of modernity that our modern world has brought and we thought they would give us joy only to find out that they haven't quite delivered to our soul like we thought they would. And let me give you one uh, kind of assessment or a barometer of this. The World Health Organization recently cited that depression is now the second most common cause of disability worldwide, second only to heart disease. Let that sink in a moment. A disease of the mind and of the soul is now the second most common cause of disability in the world. And though some of you are saying right now, well, Jamie, that's worldwide. Like, who wouldn't be depressed living in the Sudan or China? Not so fast, because the stats for America are very revealing. According to a rather recent article in Christianity Today magazine entitled The Depression Epidemic, 
In the United States, it's cited that 25% of Americans will meet the diagnostic criteria for clinical depression at some point in their lives. 25%. Well, a further 5 to 10% of adults right now are experiencing what experts call a major depressive episode. As a result of this, 15% of Americans at any one time are using an antidepressant medication to deal with their depression. And again, I'm not judging this. I'll make a point here in a minute on what I think all of this means. But just so that we know what this would mean for us as a church, let's bring this home to our church. Uh, you see, the studies show that really it doesn't matter whether you go to church or what religion you are. These stats on depression are pretty culture-wide. They actually have more to do with modern, the modern world not delivering like we thought it would. So if these stats are true, and I believe they are, that means that out of 5,000 adults that will attend our church this weekend, 1,250 of us will have or are having right now some type of debilitating depression. 500 to 1,000 of us are currently having a major depressive episode, and 750 of us are currently using antidepressant medication to deal with it. And again, I'm not suggesting that we judge all of that. I'm just saying that when you look at the prevalence of depression, I've dealt with it in my own life, in the world today, and especially in American culture, don't tell me that the modern world has made us all joyful. It hasn't. And it's not from lack of trying. Psychology Today revealed, Psychology Today magazine revealed a few years ago that in the year 2008 alone, there were 4,000 new books published that year on happiness. Wow, 4,000 books. When I read that this week, I went to Google. You guys are familiar with Google. And I typed in happiness and joy into my Google search engine. And in 0.26 seconds, it delivered up to my screen 75,600,000 websites having to do with happiness. And when I experienced that, I thought to myself, this, isn't this just ironic? But we have happiness at our fingertips in our modern world. It's just not very deep in our soul. Amen? It's just not. And we just have to come to grips with the fact that our modern world promised us the good life and it promised us happiness as a result and they were only right about one of them. That there indeed is a good life to be found. It's just that it can't deliver like we thought it would to our souls. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning with that rather long introduction and Cactus and Ben, you are with us now as well, is joy. And I want to talk to you about joy, however, from God's perspective. I want you and I to set aside today uh, medical advances, time-saving devices, entertainment, mass travel, the internet, self-help books, set all that stuff aside today, and let's take a look at what the Bible says about joy and how you and I get it in our lives today. And so I'm going to do two things in our time remaining. I'm going to give you a main point uh, on what the Bible says about joy and how to find it. And then I'm going to give you a take-home point in a few minutes here. And I think this will be hopefully revolutionary for your soul. Here's my main point. Joy is derived from God and all that He provides. Let me repeat that. I've chosen my words very carefully this morning. Joy is derived from God and all that He provides for us. Now... You might remember that we are in a series of messages here at our church on the subject of revival. How to get a second wind with God when we need it the most. 
And you also might remember that we're using the Old Testament book of Nehemiah as our guide. Nehemiah is simply a historical book about the rebuilding of the walls and gates around Jerusalem after the city had been decimated and after the people had been exiled. A group would return back to Jerusalem and were rebuilding the walls and gates to rebuild their spiritual lives. And you might remember as well that a few weeks ago I shared with you that the latter half of the book of Nehemiah, we're getting to the end of it now, includes five key themes that consistently accompany the revival of God's people. And we should be interested in those things. Five key traits that always accompany revival. And I put them up here on your screen, cactus and venue for your screen, and they are truth, brokenness, commitment, joy, and holiness. And so we spent the last few weeks talking about the importance of truth and then brokenness. And then last week, Daryl talked to us about commitment. And today, we come to the subject of joy. Now, I need to walk you through just a little bit of chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah because it's not obvious at first, but when you look closely, you start to see the prominence and the prevalence of joy in light of revival. I'd asked Daryl actually to preach on chapter 11 last week, and when I emailed him that, he said to me, are you joking? He thought I was kidding because chapter 11 is a really hard chapter to preach on. I figured that a president of a seminary could do it, but I guess I thought wrong. (laughs) But chapter 11 is listing all the genealogies of families and clans that that essentially either lived inside or outside of Jerusalem. It actually is kind of a boring chapter because it's all these names and people and numbers that you don't know. And then it continues that listing into chapter 12. But interesting, in the midst of listing all these families and clans, there is what I call inklings of joy. Inklings of joy. Let me show you. Look at verse 17 of Nehemiah 11. It says, And Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise and who gave thanks. And then skip down a couple verses to verses 22 and 23 of Nehemiah 11. It says, And the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God, for there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. Then you turn the page into chapter 12, and it keeps listing these genealogies. And in verse 24 it says, And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, here it is, to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Do you sense it? There's inklings of joy in the air. If you didn't know any better, as you were reading all these lists, you were like, they're setting up singers and they're setting up Asaph and all these things and it sounds like they're getting ready to celebrate something. And sure enough, when you get to verses 27 to 42 of chapter 12, you see a full-blown dedication starting. And it only makes sense. They're going to dedicate these newly built walls and gates and, and dedicate them to the Lord as we will do this summer with our new facilities. And when you read the dedication, these inklings of joy start to become a lot more than just inklings. We read it for you earlier, but listen to some of the words used in verses 27 through 42. It says to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And then it talks about two great choirs who gave thanks, one to the north and one to the south, with musical instruments of David, the man of God, 
three times it says that they gave thanks with trumpets and the singers sang. And then as it's all building up momentum, you get to verse 43 of chapter 12, and this is the core verse of chapter 12. And here's what I would submit to you. If you knew nothing about the book of Nehemiah, and you guys don't know nothing, you know a lot now because we've been in it for two months, but if you knew nothing about it and you just parachuted somebody in to verse 43 and said, what is verse 43 about? They would say, say it with me, joy. Look at verse 43. It says, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Wow! These folks are in full-blown joy mode. Five times in the original Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word simcha. It uses the root word there for joy that we translate either rejoiced or joy. Five times in this one verse. And in addition to the obvious emphasis on joy, please don't miss two key things it's telling us about joy here, folks. First is that the source of their joy was God himself. It's unmistakable. It says very overtly, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. So they weren't buying into culture and saying, we're living the good life here in the 4th or 5th century B.C., boy, are we blessed. These new walls are up and, and good days are around the corner. That's not why they're rejoicing. God had made them rejoice. Somehow they find their joy in God. And then secondly, notice that the strength of this joy was incredibly profound and powerful. It says, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, which is a nice Hebrew way of saying they were bothering their neighbors. <laughs> so kind of like if you live in Glendale and there's a football game, and you get 80,000 people at a football game and it's bothering you because you live near the stadium. That's what was happening in Jerusalem at that time. So you got a clear emphasis on where this joy came from, God, as well as how great this joy was so loud that it was bothering the people around them. And folks, what you need to know is that this is core to a biblical view of joy that it is most fully found in God himself. And when it is found in God, it becomes so obvious in the life of the Christ follower that people can't help but see that you're joyful. It's not a joy that comes from modern living. It's a joy that comes from knowing God. I think the best example I can give you kind of as a corollary here is that have you ever met somebody that just got engaged to be married, maybe a young couple, and they're all excited about being engaged to be married, and, and, and you can just see it on their faces, and they just can't wait to tell you about it. And we never call them pushy or obnoxious or anything like that because it's just joy oozing out of them, right? So the girl comes up to you and she says, guess what I got, guess what I got. And you see that diamond ring, He's, he asks the question and the guy is back there kind of googly-eyed, you know, and all kind of smiling and trying to be composed. And, you know, when that happens to me, I realize that, you know, premarital counseling isn't going to work on this couple, you know. <laughs> They're not going to hear a word you say till after the marriage. So that's a couple that really should do postmarital counseling when reality sets in. But right now... They're so excited. They're so excited that joy just oozes out of them. Or if you ever had a baby, you know, and what happened to you this week? Well, we had a baby, our first baby, and joy is just oozing out. See, that's the kind of joy that God says he can give you and me on a spiritual level, and it just oozes out of us. 
Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century reform pastor and leader of one of the greatest revivals that our nation has ever seen called the First Great Awakening, once put it like this. If you don't believe that joy is linked to revival, look at what Edwards says. He says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And obviously he's not saying that family and friends and the things of this world can't give any joy. Of course they can. He's just saying compared to God. It's not even comparable. They're but little beams. They're but drops. God and God himself is the ultimate source of our joy. And so the only question becomes, once you and I get this, is, well, then how does this work? How do you and I tap into God in such a way that we get joy? Wouldn't that be a great question for you and I to ask? Especially God, by the way, who is spirit. You know, God, uh, at least now, this side of heaven, is usually not experienced with our five senses. Do we all understand that? We don't see, taste, hear, not usually, or tactically touch God. Jesus taught us in John 4 that God is spirit, and the spirit worships worship him in spirit and in truth. So how do you tap into a God? whom you can't use your five senses to necessarily experience in such a way that you can get joy. Two ways the scriptures tell us. Two things about God that will allow us to find our joy in him this side of heaven. And the first one is found in who God is. This is very important for you and me today. Cactus and venue, very important in who God is. Simply put, we find our greatest joy when we understand and experience who God has declared himself to be in his being and in his essence. What do I mean by this? I want to give you a living example from the Old Testament. Uh, Some of the greatest characters in the Old Testament were guys like Moses, uh, Aaron, uh, David, uh, Saul, Solomon. Uh, I mean, all key players in the Old Testament. Uh, One of my favorite is King David. And the reason I love King David is because when you read about his life in Samuel and Kings and then read about his writings in the Psalms, he was a very down-to-earth, relatively normal, everyday guy. And, And much of his life was spent trying to find joy like you and I do. And he dabbled in finding joy in areas like women, success and fame, nice things, extended family, sports. He was a pretty good shot with a sling. You can read about it with Goliath. And he tried to find joy in all of these areas, but he eventually learned, like most godly men do, that none of those places are really going to give you the joy you're looking for. It's only going to be found in God. And in one of his more poignant psalms, Psalm 103, he writes about this. Look up here on the screen. Let's just read it together. Follow along as I read and see if you can see what I see. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
And so who is God to David, at least in these few verses? Did you catch it? These are actually being words. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate. Don't miss this, guys. When David simply considered with his mind who God is and allowed that to permeate into his thoughts and emotions, he experienced joy. And there's so much more to God than even what is seen here in Psalm 103. I mean, here it's talking about kind of the, the graciousness and love and compassion of God, but, but God is described elsewhere as the Bible as being, how about this, completely sovereign, 100% in control of our lives. Jesus taught us about God and said that not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. Every hair on your head is numbered. So though you think God is not in control, the Bible says he actually is. The Bible further says that God is just and righteous. He's going to someday set every crooked path straight. He is that just. He's all-knowing, what theologians call omniscient. He's all-powerful, what theologians call omnipotent. He's everywhere present, what theologians call omnipresent. And one of my favorite, as Francis Schaeffer said so well years ago, he is not silent, but he is a God who reveals himself. What Carl Henry, one of my theological mentors, called divine self-disclosure. God self-discloses who he is and what he is about in the Bible to us. That's why we have the Bible, because God reveals who he is. So add all of this up. When Paul the Apostle was just thinking about God in the book of Romans, just thinking about who he is, he eventually broke out into this praise. Look up here on the screen. He said, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And say it with me, amen. Wow. See, that's what happens when you and I just consider who God is. The Bible says that that's designed to give us joy. And here's the really cool thing. No matter what may be going on around you, that kind of like all the winds and waves of everything going on around, the being of God is a consistent stream underneath the turbulent waves. And if you and I can get into that stream and start to flow with who God is, the Bible says we experience joy and even peace. You know, I really do try to do this on, on a regular basis in my life. Obviously, I'd hope you expect me to as your pastor. But when I'm dealing with all the things that I deal with in this fallen world, I just regularly, regularly steal away and just focus on who God is. And I had an experience yesterday that you guys aren't going to believe. You're going to think it might be a little bit Pollyanna. But it's true, and it really did work for me that I want to share with you that I thought was just a great application of what we're talking about here today. Uh, Kim and I spent uh, this last week in Michigan. It was her spring break, and we went back to see some family and friends. And so we were in Michigan this week. Their, their state motto in the winter really should be, it's as bad as you think. Because <laughs> I love the state of Michigan, but, I mean, it was just two feet of snow, and it was cold. And, you know, but my wife loves that, and happy wife, happy life. So we spent, you know, the, the week in Michigan. I flew back yesterday to be with you all this weekend, and she's flying in today. I'll pick her up after the third service. And I got on the plane in Michigan, did a little puddle jumper over Lake Michigan to Chicago O'Hare Airport, where I then jumped on a four-hour flight here to Phoenix. As I was getting on the flight, I, uh, I noticed the guy ahead of me that was walking down the ramp had the biggest backpack I've ever seen in my life. I mean, this made anybody traveling across Europe look mild. This thing was huge. I mean, it was just this huge pack. 
And I thought to myself, he can't be taking that on the plane. It's not going to fit in the overhead bin. And sure enough, when we got down to the end of the ramp there, he took it off himself. And I noticed he had a very little child with him, a little two-year-old, who was not happy about going on the plane. And he unzipped this pack, and it was the biggest car seat I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was a car seat that was made for a monster truck or something like that. And, 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 and I thought to myself, he's going to take that thing on the plane. And I thought, I just can't, I just pity the person that he's going to sit next to. Do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I got to tell you something about how I fly. Some of you think that because I pass her large church, I fly first class. I do not. I am almost always back in steerage with the rest of you. And... And I, and I try to get a aisle, I mean, not an aisle seat, a, a exit row seat for one reason and one reason only, no kids. And so I, I just, I don't like screaming little kids next to me. And so on this particular flight, there was no exit row seat. So I got one close up to the front of the plane thinking, you know, most families go to the back and all that. And boy, was I wrong. I sat down in my seat. And this guy came, and I'm, I'm seeing him walk down the aisle, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. And he stops right in my row. And then he proceeds to take this huge car seat, and he puts it, I'm in the window seat, he puts it right in the middle seat. And I'm thinking, no, put it in the aisle seat, and you sit in the middle seat. But I don't, I'm not going to tell people that. So he puts it in the middle seat. This kid by now is just in a full-blown tantrum, bless her heart. She did not want to be on that plane, and she was very upset. And you'll hear why in a minute, because she was away from mom for just this four-hour trip. And so he, 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 to deal with this kid who's very upset, he, he puts her in the car seat, and he just straps her in real tight. He just yanks it tight, and then he sits down and stares straight forward. <laughs> and she's screaming, and she's flailing, and she's kicking the seat above her. And so to stop her from kicking the seat above her, he moves the seat up even more and gets her feet so she can't kick the seat, but she's flailing and screaming. And it was just, I'm like going, oh my gosh, four hours of this and then he looks at her and he tries to calm her down and he says how about some chocolate <laughs> now I'm not a grandparent yet but I know that loading a kid with sugar isn't going to help a four-hour flight so he pulls out these little snicker bites and he's getting one two three and she's shoving them in I'm going oh no this kid is not going to sleep she gets done with the chocolate, and now she's really wired, wired, and she's just going nuts. And so we get up in the plane, and I decided after about a half an hour of this, I was going to do two things. First thing I was going to do is I was going to get to know this guy. Because some of you don't believe it, but, but we tend to see people as objects, and we're bothered by people. Get to know them, see them as creations of God, and your heart will be tender. I've found that for years. I do it with all of you all the time. i found that for years. And so... I decided I was going to get to know this guy, so I, I leaned over and I said, are you, are, are, is Phoenix your home or are you visiting there? He goes, what? is Phoenix your home or are you visiting there? And we have this conversation, I find out that they're going to Phoenix for a vacation, which makes sense from Chicago, and then this is classic. He said, you know, we had four travel vouchers. I got my two kids right across the aisle. They're like, hi, kids, want to trade? And we, okay, guys, the two kids across the aisle. And he goes, and, and, and so my wife decided to fly on a separate plane. So I haven't even met the woman, but I know she's brilliant. And so, I, and that's why the kid was so upset. She kept saying, mommy, 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 and it's daddy, and I'm not daddy. And I, oh my gosh, it's a mess. So 
Finally, he lets the kid out. The seatbelt light goes off. And, and, and again, I'm not kidding. I'm not making any of this up. She's run up and down the aisles. And I'm having a wonderful conversation with him. I'm telling him a little bit about my testimony, about why I became a minister and, and all that, because he was interested and it was going well. Really nice guy, actually, very nice. And, and, and all of a sudden, you can just see this happening a mile away. The kid trips. Oh, and boom, she goes down. And I love, I mean, I, you got to love little kids. You know, they're just so predictable. You ever seen that? that there's that, that four-second gap when the kid opens their mouth <laughs> to let out this blood-curling scream. But you just see it coming. They haven't even said anything yet. And she's opening her mouth, and he's picking her up, and all of a sudden, oh, just gushes out for the next hour and a half. She's just screaming in the car seat next to me, inconsolable. And then we start to land, and her ears start to go nuts, and she's even more inconsolable. The, 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 the steward guy, what did I, what did I get, get? Flight attendant. The flight attendant comes by, and, 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 he, and, he, and he says, you know, we only got a half an hour more. I'm thinking, oh. Now, I told you I did two things. I want to tell you a second thing I did. This is a true story. This is where you're not going to believe me. The guy ahead of me had the right idea. He had a $300 set of Bose noise-canceling headphones. And so right away, he put those things on, and he's just in la-la land trying to ignore this whole happening thing. But I'm right next to it. I actually have a pretty nice set of noise-canceling headphones myself for precisely this purpose. But I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to do that that's just trying to drown out distraction. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find joy right now. I really, I did this. I'm going to find joy right now in the midst of this screaming kid. I'm not going to give a two-year-old that much power over my spiritual life. And I'm going to find joy right now. Before I uh, got on the plane, not knowing what was going to befall me, I downloaded a book that I've been wanting to read for a while. It was a book written by a 17th century Anglican pastor by the name of William Law called The Spirit of Love. I don't agree with everything this guy says, but I've been wanting to read it for a while. So I pulled out my book on my Kindle here, and I was reading about 20 pages of Law's view of the spirit of love. One quote just completely caught my attention. So picture me here, screaming kid. I'm stuck in the window seat reading this book on God. And Law says this. He says, look at every vice, pain, and disorder of human nature. I'm going, I got it right next to me. Look at every vice, pain, and disorder in human nature. He says, it is in itself nothing else but the spirit of the creature turned from the universality of love to some self-seeking or own will in created things, which is just fancy English language of basically saying that anytime we're in pain, it's because of the things of this fallen world and we're focused on those, not on God. He says, we know this so that love alone is and only can be the cure of every evil. And he that lives in the purity of God's love is risen out of the power of evil into the freedom of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of heaven. And I highlighted that on my Kindle and I took a picture of it and I just read it over and over again. I kid you not, after about a half an hour of meditating on God and who he is in his person, I put my seat back, I folded my arms, and this kid is screaming next to me. And without any Bose headphones at all, I just sat there for an hour. I think I might have even fell asleep for a little bit because I just thought about God and I experienced joy. Some of you are saying, well, Jamie, okay, that's a, a kid screaming next to you in a car seat, big whip. I'd agree with you. Life brings a lot more serious problems than a kid screaming in a car seat, amen? 
Uh, we have people here today struggling with cancer, life-threatening cancer. We have some of you here today that are dealing with the grief, the grief of a loved one who you love for so many years and now you're just in grieving mode. We have some of you here are heart sick over your kids and some of the choices that they're making. Some of you here have been unemployed for years and these are big problems, these are big things. And yet the reality is, is that God says you and I, in the midst of all the tumultuous nature of life, we can find joy if we focus on who he is. But you got to focus on it. you got to stop dabbling with the things of this world. And all I know is if I can do it on a four-hour plane ride from, Phoenix to, 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 or from Chicago to Phoenix, in the midst of a screaming kid, and practice it that way, you and I can train our souls to do that as well. John Piper is one of the better spiritual writers today, and Piper basically argues in almost all of his writings that we can find our satisfaction and sufficiency in God, but he also says you got to train your soul to do so. That it doesn't just happen from reading a three-minute quiet time book every morning and then going on your way. It happens when you slow down and get in the presence of who God is for extended periods of time and train your soul to delight in the Godhead. See, that's what it takes. And I've been doing that now for 33 years as a, a Christian. And I feel like I'm just starting to get what joy is about so that I can even do things like I did yesterday in the midst of very, well, what seemingly might be trying circumstances. I love how Charles Spurgeon, one of the great 19th century British preachers called the Prince of Preachers once put it to his students. This is a great quote. Look up here on the screen. He said, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. When you speak of hell, well, then your everyday face will do. <laughs> you know, one of the things I love about that quote is I sit there and go, well, obviously times don't change, do they? He had sour-faced Christians back then, and we got sour-faced Christians today. In which Spurgeon would say, you know, when you're talking about heaven, light up! Because you've been given so much just in who God is. And your everyday face, well, it shows the other place. And that says something about you and me. We should be the most contagiously joyous people on planet Earth. Amen? Amen. We should. But if you're going to try to find it in the world around you or in the good life, give up. Because even on your best day, it's a false joy. It's just joy from this fallen world on a good day. God says that we can find joy in him. But you've got to focus on who he is. And then because we're fast running out of time, and I want to get you guys to, uh, to see our, our new campus here and for Cactus and Venue U as well, I, I, let me point out a second thing that they, we do to get joy, and that is you don't just find joy in who God is, but in what he does. So in that same psalm, that David is finding joy in the character and being of God. Look at what else he says a few verses before that. This is so cool. Look at Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4a. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And what are they? He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. Focus on those three words, forgives, and heals and redeems. And let me just ask you a couple of key questions. In Jesus Christ, has God forgiven you all of your sin, yes or no? Yes. yes. That alone should put a smile on your face each and every day, right? It should. Jeremiah was lamenting over the downfall of Jerusalem, and he wrote a book called Lamentations on it. 
And in chapter 3, as he's lamenting all the downfall, he says this, tucked away in it, he says, but your mercies are new every morning. And now in Christ, his mercies are new every day for you and I. So we get out of bed and say, no matter what happens today, I'm forgiven. And that gives me joy. Let me ask you this. Has God ever brought any kind of healing to your life, emotionally, relationally, done something in your life to bring a healing to a hurt that you have? Yes or no? Yes. God does that. He moves and breathes in our circumstances. Here's the deal. Not as much as we might want him to. And maybe not according to our agenda. But that's why he's God and we're not. And yet he does move. And yet as Christians, we sometimes allow the areas that we think God should have moved but didn't to outweigh the areas where God has moved. And what gives us joy is when we focus on the right side of the ledger and what God has done. And then probably most importantly, God has redeemed us in Christ. If you're a believer here in Jesus Christ, God says all eternity is waiting for you when your body stops working Oh my gosh, Paul the Apostle latched onto that so significantly that at one point in his life he said, well, if that's true, then for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because if I live, I get the inklings of joy right now, but if I die, it's joy unspeakable for all of eternity with God. And that lit up his face. See, the reality is you and I have no reason for joy except if we try to find it in the wrong areas. I love how C.S. Lewis said it at one point in his life. Lewis always had a wonderful way of saying things. When he was thinking about his generation and how they find joy in drink and sex and all the things around him, even back in the 1950s in Britain, he, he, he said it this way when he was thinking about our desires and God. He said it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite, infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that. In his day and age, be a kid living in a slum making a mud pie because that's the best he could do. And a guy comes along and says, how about a holiday at the sea? And the kid goes, no thanks, I'm content with mud pies. Lewis said, that's the average Christian. We're, we're content with the mud pies of modern living when God's offered us a holiday at the sea in himself. And we're content with mud pies. We are far too easily pleased. Because here's why all this is important. And this is your take-home point with this we're done. The reason all of this is important is that joy is both a source as well as a byproduct of your revival. It is. God says it is joy that will lead to you getting a second wind with him. And isn't this so cool? Joy also then is a byproduct. It's the barometer of whether you do have a second wind with him. I believe this so strongly. I try not to judge people. I really do. But after being a pastor now for 25 years, I celebrate 25 years of pastoral ministry this year, I can tell you one thing I've learned is that I can tell how close a Christian is with God by the joy they have in their lives. I really can. And again, I'm not saying that when you don't have joy, you don't know God. I'm just saying that your intimacy with God will produce joy, and the absence of joy says something about your intimacy with God. And here's the great challenge for you and me, and with this we're done. I've also noticed something else about Christians. Starting at about my age, I turned 50 this year, I find that Christians do one of two things as they get older. They either get more joyful or they get more like a curmudgeon, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, it's true. Rarely will you and I stay the same 
after 50. You're either going to get more in love with God and his amazing grace for you, and that will give you joy, or you're going to get more rule-focused, and you're going to get more angry as you watch Fox News and all these other things. And I mean, I love Fox News. I'm not picking on Fox News, but I, some people watch Fox News just get all angry, and they get mad and all this, and I just sit there and go, you know what? It, it's one of two roads for you. Either you're going to find your satisfaction in who God is and allow this to give you joy, or you're just going to become one of those hardened, angry bitter Christians that even your grandkids are going to go, do we have to go to grandma and grandpa's today? <laughs> Honestly, you don't want to be that. Let's allow joy to be that which gives us our second wind. Let's find it in God and who he is and what he does, and let's let joy lead us home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. And Lord, I know for even me, I don't tend to be a naturally joyous person, so God, I I have to work hard at this. I have to work hard at finding my satisfaction in you and allowing my spirit to be buoyed by who you are in your being and what you have done for us and for me. So Lord, I pray for us as a church that as we are, are really riding the winds and coattails of this search for revival, that God, you would make real to us today the importance of joy and that, Lord, we would find our joy and sufficiency in you to the point, God, that even others would see it and go, whoa, something, someone has gotten into you and we can give glory to you. So God, make us a joyous people and uh, we'll deflect all glory and praise to you. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.